Andy Cook, a pastor in Georgia, once shared this story about his life. A life-threatening crisis came to my home when I was only 25. My wife suffered a near-fatal stroke and was rushed to the hospital. Her doctor scrambled to keep her alive. Within hours, we were making decisions that other families face countless times every day. Our options included surgery, medical treatment, and prayer. To make matters worse, two doctors adamantly called for two radically different courses of actions. One proposed immediate surgery, while the other warned that immediate surgery would be the worst of all options. Both said that my wife might die if their course of advice wasn't taken. A third doctor solved our dilemma by arranging a course of treatment acceptable to both the first two doctors. And within a few months, that course of action proved to be the right one. Looking back at that time, the comparison is almost too much to comprehend. On Wednesday, my most difficult decision in life was what to eat for lunch. On Thursday, I was needing to make life-saving decisions for my wife. So it is in life. We make choices every day. Some of them don't affect our lives in any real way, and others have life-altering implications. As we conclude our expositional study in the book of Galatians, and Paul ends his letter to the Galatian Christians, here Paul will now talk about four decisions in our lives where our choices have deep and real implications. And in light of our freedom in Christ and the knowledge of our salvation by faith alone and Christ alone through God's grace alone, Paul will steer us into making the right choice when given the option. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 as we take a look at verses 1 to 18. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. Here I now read from chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Paul begins this last chapter of his letter by giving a hypothetical situation where a believer falls into sin. This person was trying his best not to sin, but eventually succumbs to his sin nature and does fall into sin. As a side note, if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to listen or to watch it. In that message, we talk about how to win the battle over our sin and temptation, which is important for any follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the imagery here in verse 1 is of someone who is trying not to sin, but sin overtakes him. In other words, overwhelms him, and he falls into temptation. What are we to do with this person? Well, Paul instructs that instead of condemning that person, we should restore this person with gentleness. We should be gracious to extend restorative kindness and understanding to him. And here in the last part of verse 1, it reminds us that we should show that person grace because we too can easily fall into the same sin. This type of gentle restoration, bathed in grace, requires spiritual maturity, as verse 1 says. Why? Because it's so natural for us to automatically condemn and judge. We as Christians somehow revel in catching someone in sin. We love to play the gotcha game. And so when we hear someone caught having an affair, we say, how can that person do that? He or she is so terrible and unfaithful. 
And we say or think that without remembering that we can fall into the same temptation of cheating on our spouse as well, if not careful. Or we find out that one of our student friends was caught cheating in class. And we say, how terrible, what a bad and evil student having to resort to cheating without ever thinking how many times our eyes have wandered to someone else's test paper or we have thought about ways to cheat online. Or we read on the newspaper and we get so upset to find out that a politician has been charged with graft and corruption and she or he happens to be a Christian. What a shame to the name of Jesus Christ and how can a follower of Jesus do this? And so we condemn harshly, but forgetting that we have taken liberties to also manipulate the system and cheated ourselves in this business climate we are in. In a way, the reason we do this is because of the competitive nature in each and every one of us, where somehow we want to say that we are better than the other person because we were strong enough not to fall into sin, or we were smart enough or smarter not to get caught in our sin, or we were simply more spiritual that we were able to fight off our temptations. That's why Paul says here in verse 1, a spiritually mature Christian who remembers that apart from the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome our sin nature, we would easily fall into sin and temptation, will make this life choice, number one, to choose to show grace to those who have sinned. Choose to show grace to those who have sinned. In fact, Jesus says the very same thing in his admonition in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how could you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Show grace because you yourself may have the same struggle or the same blind spot we should remember not to be so judgmental. In Paul's example, these aren't Christians who are openly flaunting their sinful lifestyles. These are people who are doing their best not to sin. They have simply fallen in a moment of weakness. Sin has overtaken them. The admonition is to show them grace, to gently restore them back into the fellowship of believers especially if they are willing to repent and change. Choose to show grace to those who have sinned. This is why one of the core values of our church is to be a safe space, a safe place for the spiritually broken. The ethnic Asian churches, the ethnic Chinese churches, are known to be places where sadly grace is not often extended to sinners. There is an unspoken one-strike policy One strike and you're out. For if you mess up once, you are no longer welcome into the church community. But that would be unbiblical. Thankfully, that is no longer the case in our church. And we have a grace-oriented church community. That's part of our culture, a grace-oriented culture. In fact, that is what the Bible calls us to be. Spiritually mature believers should choose to show grace to those who have sinned and restore them to fellowship. 
In his book, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, Jonah Berger tells this story. A few years ago, students at Harvard University were asked to make a seemingly straightforward choice. Which would you choose? A job where they would make $50,000 a year, option A, or one where they would make $100,000 a year, option B? Seems like a no-brainer, right? Everyone should take option B, 100,000 over 50,000. But there was one catch. In option A, the students would get paid twice as much as others who would only get $25,000. In option B, they would get paid half as much as others who would get 200,000. So option B would make the students more money overall but they would be doing worse than the others around them. What did the majority of people choose? They chose option A. They preferred to do better than others, even if it meant getting less for themselves. Did you hear that? They preferred to do better than others, even if it meant getting less for themselves. They chose the option that was worse in absolute terms, but better in relative terms. People don't just care about how they're doing. They care about their performance in relation to others. Getting to board a plane a few minutes early is a nice perk of achieving premier status. But part of what makes this perk nice is that you get to board before everyone else. People sadly care about hierarchy. But we don't have to get caught up in this game of hierarchy. The Bible encourages us to choose to show grace. Just as we have been shown grace, no one is better. All of us are equally undeserving, and yet we have been saved by God's grace. Look at verse 2 with me. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here Paul continues in verse 2 to challenge the Galatian Christians to bear one another's burdens. In view of the context of this letter, the burden that is referred to here are spiritual burdens, such as sin or temptations. We are to help one another overcome spiritual burdens like sin and temptation through prayer, through accountability, through reminders, through rebuke, through encouragement, through discipleship. And we help bear these burdens out of love, which is the law of Christ. In our love, we desire that other believers do not fall into sin and temptation, so we are willing to walk alongside of them to walk the extra mile in order to warn them, to advise them, to admonish them, to remind them, even when it may not be something they want to hear or the popular thing to do. This burden-bearing may require that we speak the truth in love. My friends, are you willing to speak the truth in love to help a fellow believer not fall into sin and temptation? I know that many of us don't like to get involved in other people's business, especially when we are not asked. We don't want to be known as the busybody, or in Hokkien Chinese, being kepo. But this is part of Paul's admonition to bear one another's spiritual burden. To say what needs to be said when you see someone about to sin, or they are living in temptation in such a way that doesn't sound condemning. In fact, that is what Paul is doing throughout this entire letter, correcting the Galatians who have fallen into the sin of legalism. So when you see a married person in the church, 
and they are having an unhealthy emotional relationship with someone, not their spouse, will you be able to call them out? Or you see a young person with self-destructive tendencies, perhaps evidence through their social media postings, when you read it, are you willing to send them a private message to correct them, to help them, to call them out? Or when you see a fellow believer in authority who exhibits hypocritical actions, saying one thing and then doing something else, will you speak the truth in love to correct them, to bring things to their attention? This is how we bear each other's spiritual burdens. And it is another choice we make daily in our lives. Life choice number two, the choice to help others spiritually. The choice to help others spiritually. If we all choose to do this, it will level up the spiritual maturity of our entire community. You know, I'm so appreciative of a church member who a few years ago contacted me. He said, Pastor, I noticed that you had recently liked a picture on Facebook, which may not be appropriate for someone of your spiritual standing. I said, really? Can you show me? And sure enough, when they showed me, I realized it wasn't appropriate. I don't remember liking it. And so what happened was my thumb probably had slipped, and I accidentally liked it as I was scrolling through my news feed, and I never realized it. And so I told this person, thank you so much for your love for me, that you would alert me to this. It is very much appreciated. And it must have taken you a lot of courage to do this, but this warning protects my reputation. The choice to help others spiritually can look and take many different forms. But if we make that choice to do just that, we keep each other accountable and we therefore raise the spiritual maturity of our church community. Look at verse 3 and 4. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Here in verses 3 to 4, Paul says that if we're going to make a choice to bear each other's spiritual burden, as a believer, we have to also examine our own lives. To examine how God is working in our lives, but also specifically to see if there's an attitude of spiritual pride and self-promotion the so-called holier-than-thou attitude, where we have a tendency with that attitude to want to call others out without looking at our own lives, right? If you're going to help bear each other's spiritual burden by encouraging them or rebuking them to correct something in their life, then the tone and the context matters a lot. Let's say you sin and someone approaches you and tells you, how could you have done that sin? I've never fallen into that sin. But you should be careful the next time because God is watching you and He's very upset with you now. What will people in the church think about you? You are a sinner. How would you feel if someone approached you like that? Or let's say with a different scenario, you commit the same sin and someone approaches you to call you out on that sin and says to you, friend, I just want to point out something that you may want to work on. You know, I struggle with the same thing, and I've been able to overcome this problem with the Lord's help. Let me know if I can help you in any way. 
Don't worry about what the others in the church think. As long as you ask God for forgiveness and are willing to change, you will be reminded that God is loving and gracious and He will forgive. Now, with that sort of approach, how will you respond? I'm sure a lot better than the first scenario. You and I have the choice to help others spiritually. But how we do it is just as important. And that's why Paul's admonition here is for us to examine ourselves so that instead of coming across with a very condemning attitude, we show forth love and grace because we too, perhaps, would have the tendency to have fallen into the same sin. And so we are to work out and examine our own life. Look at verse 5. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, on a cursory reading, verse 5 seems to contradict verse 2, but it doesn't. The Greek word for burden here is the different one used in verse 2. Here in verse 5, the idea is of a personal burden, like a personal backpack, that each individual Christian is responsible to bear. It was Paul making sure that someone doesn't abuse the spiritual principle he has presented and read into this letter and blame the fact that because no one was there to help them with their spiritual lives that they fell into sin and can continue to sin. This is Paul closing the loophole and reminding each believer that since the Holy Spirit indwells them, then every one of us has a responsibility to carry our own spiritual burden in order to follow Christ as we carry our own cross so that we will live our lives in such a way that He so desires for us to live. Look at verse 6. Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. In another area of the choice we make as believers, Paul is telling the Galatian Christians that as the church body, they should support financially those who are ministering to them as teachers or pastors. Apparently, the Galatians had stopped doing so, perhaps because they either didn't like the stern admonition that Paul had given them, or they were influenced by the false teachers called the Judaizers. Whatever the case, the principle Paul is trying to get across is that a spiritual teacher or pastor shares with them the good things of God's Word, and they as listeners should reciprocate with sharing blessings that they receive from the Lord. In other words, since the pastor-teacher shares spiritual food with you, then one is to share physical food with them. May I say that this is not an issue in our church community. Being the pastor here now, on my 16th year, I have seen the outpouring of love and generosity by our church family upon all of the pastors and ministers and the ministry teams that work in the church. That's why there's a running joke among our staff that if you work at the church, you should expect to gain a few pounds with all of the blessings that often come in the form of food or meals. So may I take this opportunity to share on behalf of the church staff a great thank you to our church family for all of your love and generosity and kindness. None of us are starving. Far from it. Look at verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap 
everlasting life. In light of the admonition for the Galatians to give, Paul shares an unchangeable truth, which is that there are consequences for every action we take. Using a farming illustration, Paul notes that generally you get a harvest based on the hard work you put in. In our lingo today, the output you get is directly related to the input you put in. And God cannot be deceived. God cannot be tricked. He sees everything. He knows the effort you put in. But not only the effort that you put in, He sees what you are putting into it. In His omniscience, He knows if what we do is good or bad according to the standards He has set in the Scriptures. So if a person indulges in the flesh and gives into his sinful nature, then the result will be terrible and will not have any significant value. In fact, it will die to corruption. You know, I've said it over and over again. God forgives a sin, but sin has consequences. I hope you will remember that. You should not think that God somehow does not love you or has not forgiven you if when you repent, you still suffer the consequences of your sin. For example, even though you repent and ask God for forgiveness, your spouse still leaves you because of your infidelity. Or you still get sick with an STD because of your actions. Or you lose your savings or go to jail because of your sinful ways. These are the consequences of your actions. God still loves you. God still forgives you when you repent of your sins. But there are still consequences. You see, when we ask for forgiveness... We are also acknowledging that while we have done wrong, that we are willing to accept the consequences and the results of our actions. Now, if God is gracious and merciful and chooses to minimize or negate those consequences of our actions, then that is His prerogative. Now, back to the illustration about reaping what we sow. On the other hand, if you sow in the Spirit, such as investing in and supporting the Lord's work through His servant, as the context speaks of, then the harvest will result in much spiritual rewards with eternal value and significance. You see, my friends, Paul here presents another choice we must make daily. Number three, the choice to build up my heavenly wealth. The choice to build up my heavenly wealth. In fact, these were the same words echoed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break it and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every day you and I are given the choice whether we want to build up our earthly wealth or our heavenly wealth. What will it be? The Lord Himself says that we are to build up treasures in heaven because where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Paul echoes the same thing, that earthly wealth leads to eventual corruption and decay while heavenly wealth reaps with it eternal value and significance. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap 
if we do not lose heart. Paul's encouragement here was for them to choose to do right, to build up heavenly wealth, and for them not to be discouraged in doing what is good because the results of their works will eventually bear fruit. They are to persevere. We are to persevere in doing good for the sake of Christ. Apparently here in the Philippines, there's a boom in caring for ornamental plants and gardening. Many in the church and even among the church staff have taken to caring for plants and growing veggies and fruits at home. The conversations I hear are about what's the best fertilizer to use, how much water to give, not too much, not too little, how to factor in sunshine without drying the plant or the fruit. I'm not into gardening because I simply don't have the patience. Maybe I would be interested if the plant or the fruit grew within a day. But if I have to wait two to three to four months, I will get tired. But there are people who simply love gardening. They have the patience to enjoy this hobby. They tell me when they see that their plant flowers or buds or when their fruits or vegetables are harvested and they can eat it, it is worth the wait. It's satisfying. I have to take their word for it. Maybe I need to get into gardening to build patience and learn about perseverance. But this is Paul's point. In due time, at the appointed time, it will be worth having invested your life living in the Spirit and not living in the moment by indulging the flesh. You know, you see this play out every day. Individuals who simply can't wait For example, a young man or a young woman who can't wait until marriage to express their physical love and intimacy will have to deal with complex family issues. Individuals who rush into marriage without knowing the partner they are going to marry well will have relational issues for years. People who take shortcuts in business to get wealthy quickly will find out later in life they have to worry about getting found out or being found out and being taken to jail. Don't give up on doing what is good simply because it takes a long time. Choose to build up your heavenly wealth. Persevere. The rewards will come one day. It will be worth it. As the story of the tortoise and the hare reminds us and teaches us, slow and steady eventually wins the race. Look at verse 10 with me. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul writes, when you have the opportunity, use it as an occasion to do good, not for your salvation, but to invest in eternity. And the priority goes to other Christians, since they are part of our spiritual family, because even in the world we help family first and then others. Paul is speaking to Christians here in their individual capacity. Let us do good to all, to help others. Investing in heavenly wealth through helping others is not the responsibility of the church as an organization, but to each and every one of us that makes up the body of Christ called the church. So this is a responsibility through a choice we make every day. Look with me now at verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. This verse seems to indicate that Paul took over the writing of his letter from a scribe and from this point on writes himself. Some biblical scholars have suggested 
that Paul used all capital letters at this point in the letter. Or perhaps he just wrote the letters bigger to emphasize the important summary point as he brings this letter to a close. Verse 12 and 13. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here in verses 12 to 13, Paul again warns the Galatian Christians about the Judaizers and the false gospel and the false teaching they were propagating. He warns them that the Judaizers were just trying to make a good impression with them. It was a show. There really wasn't much substance. Paul says that these false teachers were even afraid of persecution and simply wanted to win more converts to their false teaching so that they can boast in their so-called good works. Paul saw through them, and hence the need for this very strong letter to warn them about these false teachers. Verses 14 to 15. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. While the Judaizers boasted in themselves and in their ability to save themselves by following rules and regulations, Paul says that his boast, which he is most proud of, was the cross of his Lord Jesus Christ. Paul finds his glory, his boast, was in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And since the cross signifies mankind's inability to save themselves apart from the work of God's grace through his Son... That means Paul's pride and glory was in the Lord. That's why for Paul, the world and all that it had to offer was of no appeal for him. What the flesh offered with its promotion of self, sex, possession, prestige, friends, being liked, wasn't something that Paul was drawn to. So as Paul was not attracted to the world, in the same way the world saw in the cross and in Paul as a follower of Christ something that didn't offer them very much as well. And that's why the cross is an offense to the world, as we already talked about earlier in our sermon series. But the world's unattraction to him and of the cross was of no concern to Paul. He didn't care how the world looked at him. What mattered most was that he was a new creation, as the end of verse 15 says. You see, when you have the new, the old doesn't appeal to you anymore. Just like if you get the PlayStation 5 for Christmas, you won't care about returning back to playing on the PlayStation 4 or the PlayStation 3. It's old. When you are new in Christ, the old things of the world find no appeal or should find no appeal for you. Because what the world has to offer is old. It's dated. It's unappealing to you who are new in Christ. You see, Paul presents life choice number four here. Number four, the choice to find my glory in the cross of Christ. The choice to find my glory in the cross of Christ. Every day we have the choice to find our glory in ourselves or to find our glory in the cross of Christ. To live for Him or to live for ourselves. I'm reminded of a story during the Lebanese Civil War which spanned 1975 to 1992. 
Mary Corey, age 17, from Dalmor, Lebanon, and her family were forced to their knees in front of their house when their village was raided by Muslim extremists. With a gun held to her head, she and her parents were given one choice. And this choice was that if you don't become a Muslim, you will be shot. Mary knew Jesus had been given a similar choice, give up his profession of being the Son of God and the Savior of the world, or to be crucified, he chose the cross. So she replied to the one with the gun in her head, I was baptized as a Christian, and his word came to me, don't deny your faith. I will obey. Go ahead and shoot. A Muslim who had just killed her father and her mother shot her dead as well. Two days later, the Red Cross came into her village, and they found where the family had been shot. And to their surprise, they found that Mary was still alive. But the bullet had cut through her spinal cord, leaving both arms paralyzed. At first, Mary was depressed, not knowing what she could do now. Then the Lord spoke to her, and she knew what she must do with her now paralyzed life. Everyone has a vocation, she said. I can never marry or do any physical work. So I will offer my life to the Muslims, just like the one who cut my father's throat, stabbed my mother while cursing her, and tried to kill me. My life will be a prayer for them. And that's what she did. Praying for the Muslim, reaching out to them with the gospel. And you can see uh, her testimony on YouTube, how she cared and helped them. Mary Corey was one who chose to find her glory in the cross of Jesus Christ, not living for herself, but for the Lord. Can you and I make the same choice daily in life? Look at verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For those that boast in the cross, reject the allure of the world, and pride themselves in the newness of our creation with the help of the Holy Spirit, they will be blessed with peace and mercy from the Lord. And this blessing will be given to those who believe in Christ through justification by grace alone, through faith alone, applying both to the Jewish and the Gentile believers. Finally, look at verses 17 to 18. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. To close this letter, Paul acknowledges that what he wrote may not be fully accepted by all who read it. But it was the truth from the Lord, and he did not waver in saying what needed to be said in tough love. Anyone who challenges this could see the marks of persecution for Christ and the truth which he stood for and which he taught. While it was a strong letter that Paul wrote to correct false teaching in the Galatian church, Paul ended this letter by lovingly calling the readers brethren and wishing upon them grace from the Lord. As we close, let me share with you a story that Tim Stafford wrote for Christianity Today. In it, he tells the story. A pastor I know, Steffi Belinsky, starts each baptismal class with a jar full of beans. He asks his students to guess how many beans are in the jar and on a big pad of paper writes down their estimates. Then next to those estimates, 
he asked them what is their favorite song. And there he lists their favorite songs. When the lists are complete, he reveals the actual numbers of beans in the jar. The whole class looks over their guesses to see which estimate was closest to being right. Belinsky then turns to the list of favorite songs, at which point he will ask the class, and which one was closest to being right? The students would protest that there is no right answer to the question of a person's favorite song because it is merely a matter of taste. Belinsky, who holds a PhD in philosophy, would then ask, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like guessing the number of beans or more like choosing your favorite song? Always, Belinsky says, from the old to the young, he gets the same answer. Choosing one's faith is more like choosing a favorite song. And that's sad, actually, because that is not the Christian walk. The Christian walk and the choices we make is not based on a matter of preference, optional for us. It is based on what is right and what is wrong. There is an absolute. And that's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the choices we make as a believer is not a matter of preference, nor is it optional. It is a matter of doing what is right or doing what is wrong. And that's why the admonishment, do not give up doing what is right. And so my prayer for you, friends, is that we make the right choices every day in our lives. Because not only does it have consequences in the life we live now, but in the life eternal. So when you live this life, make the choice to show grace to those who have sinned. Make the choice to help others spiritually. Make the choice to build up your heavenly wealth. Make the choice to find your glory in the cross of Christ. May the Holy Spirit help us to live a life that is indeed holy and pleasing to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in the book of Galatians. Thank you that even though this is a difficult book, not only to understand at times, but also stern in its tone, it is a wake-up call for each and every one of us who simply believe that the choices we make are a matter of preference. In fact, the right choices are optional for us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us every day to make the right choices because the right choices in life is a matter not on what we want it to be, but, one, but what the Scriptures command us to do. May it be that we live this life in such a way that our life only brings glory to your name. Bless each person here who has heard your word and will apply it into their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.